Welcome to our continuing Vote 2016 election coverage. I'm Enrique Cerna, along with Joni Balter, KCTS 9 political analyst. President-elect Donald Trump says that he will nominate Dr. Ben Carson, a retired neurosurgeon who ran against Trump in the Republican primaries, to be the next secretary of HUD, the Department of Housing and Urban Development. In spite of the fact that Carson has no experience in government or running a large bureaucracy, the president-elect says Carson is his man to run HUD, an agency with a $47 billion budget. HUD oversees programs that provide vouchers and other rental assistance for 5 million low-income families, fights urban blight, and helps struggling homeowners stave off foreclosures. Now, Ron Simmons knows something about HUD. The former King County executive spent two years as the Deputy Secretary of HUD in the Obama administration. And he joins us now with his thoughts about Ben Carson becoming the next HUD secretary. So when you heard that uh, Ben Carson was going to be nominated by President-elect Trump, what did you think? I was a little surprised um, because... Um, didn't have that uh, the management experience of dealing with a very large, complicated agency. Um, but he's incredibly bright, um, and if he has a wonderful management team, it may work out, but he's going to have to have a very, very good management team. I was just in D.C. last week, and I was talking to some of my friends and some people I was interviewing, uh, federal employees, members of House and Senate staff, and there was a sense among some of these people that bureaucratic Washington runs on its own axis. So in other words, that the new Donald Trump administration and the new HUD secretary will have a hard time really changing things. What do you make of that? I agree with that. We call it the we be. We be here before you came. We be here after <laughs> you leave. And, and, and the reason is, is that uh, most secretaries, deputy secretaries, and assistant secretaries only last about two to three years. But the bureaucracy itself are people who have been there for 20 to 30 years. So they have seen people come and people go. And they have very complicated rule systems and performance requirements that are built in. You can tilt the bureaucracy. You can never have it do a U-turn. So when you were there, did you feel that, you know, some of the programs from earlier administrations were still in forward motion so much that they you couldn't stop them by having a new HUD secretary? You can modify an existing program, and that's what you do. Uh, you can attempt to change its personality or its character. But the idea of fundamentally being able to change a direction of a program is near impossible. And, you know, I'm not too sure the federal government should do that. I think if you're going to change a program or an emphasis, you should be thoughtful. It should be done over time so it can be fully implemented. HUD, for an example, when I was there, had 81 regional offices and district, and district offices. Now it has 38. So you have an entire bureaucracy outside of Washington, D.C., with its own demands, its own members of Congress, its own legislators, its own mayors, its own elected officials, and they want things done a certain way. So you, it is just an incredibly difficult task to turn around not only uh, U.S. Department of Housing Urban Development, but I can tell you most every federal agency has the same we call cultural mindset. Um, and it's, like I said, you can tilt it. And I don't mind that. The, the local governments can turn on a dime. 
state governments are, you can turn around. I am not too sure federal policy, which affects everybody in the country, should be able to be turned on a dime. And the systems that are built in are not designed to do that. Well, let's talk about Ben Carson. Uh, the fact is, is that his background had been in medicine prior to running for the presidency. Um, he, even a few weeks ago when talk about him maybe joining the administration in any capacity, and, and, and there was talk about him joining HUD, uh, he said that uh, he was reluctant because of the fact that he didn't have experience and being a part of uh, running a government agency and a massive one at that. So what do you think he's going to encounter when he takes over this. You know, my most traumatic experience was sitting in a meeting with the Federal Housing Administrative Staff. Now, FHA is the largest insurer of mortgages, and it's really complicated, and they have to maintain reserves. They have to make investments not only federally, but also uh, worldwide, uh, about a trillion dollars worth. They're the largest component. And by the time you finished talking about market systems, bonds, and insurance, you felt like, wow, what just happened to me? So it is. <laughs> we're swimming. <laughs> we're swimming. Or why did I agree to do this? I mean, it's a very complicated system and not easy, and yet it is the largest component within um, within HUD. You, you you have small programs um, that are easier to work with and understandable, but they're complicated as well because they have ownership at the local level. But I'll never forget that meeting talking about uh, FHA insurance. It was a it was like going to a class uh, on stock mar stock market policy and international investment. Um, because that's what you do. Those bonds are sold all over the world. At a um, tremendously high level, too. At, at a really high level, a number of people who all have their own rules, and yet you have Congress saying, we don't want reserves impacted, we want the integrity of the, uh, uh, the purchases uh, guaranteed, and we're doing that in the middle of a recession brought about by the misbehavior of Wall Street. I'm telling you, when he goes in that first meeting, he will say, oh, my God, why did I agree to this? The other programs, um, uh, for instance, there's a rule that I saw that he mentioned, which I found very fascinating. It is called Affirmatively Furthering Fair Housing. It was born out of the uh, President Nixon when he sent a law to uh, Congress that was adopted um, by Republicans and Democrats that prohibited race discrimination in housing. But it had a rule, and that rule basically said, that you could not receive community development block grant uh, uh, monies, uh, which are we call CDBG, which are monies that jurisdictions get, most metropolitan areas get, unless you had a housing plan. Uh, when I went there, Seattle hadn't had an adopted housing plan since 2005, so they were already 10 years late um, and still getting their block grants. But the housing plans basically said that you had to provide opportunities for people of color and people who are poor to move into more affluent and white neighborhoods. But we found in our tours uh, with a team of people that a lot of people were actually really comfortable in a despairing neighborhood because they feared movement. The other thing that we overlaid it with is that place matters. We can determine the lifetime earnings of children by the zip code they are born in or live in. We can, uh, we, call, we can determine how long you're going to live, the illnesses you're going to get. Um, uh, it, we always say that, that 
that zip codes are life determinants for adults and for children. So we changed the rule, and the rule said that cities not only had to provide opportunity, but we wanted them to restore the neighborhoods that they had failed to restore because of patterns of segregation and investment. And that was the rule. He commented that the rule was communistic, and our issue is no. Uh, it provided two options for every jurisdiction, and we had Republican and Democratic mayors all agreeing that a two-fold approach, restoration of neighborhoods that were now segregated, where we had disproportionate number of poor people and people of color, should be restored. And we should still think about and, and try to pursue providing opportunities for people to move out of those neighborhoods. But again, it was based upon what we call the science, and the science said overwhelmingly that place matters. So if all of a sudden he were to say we don't, we don't want to restore um, uh, neighborhoods that are poor, that would fly in the face of his profession because it was the medical professionals and health professionals that were most articulate by saying if we change neighborhoods, we get better health results. Educators said if we change neighborhoods, we get better education in school. So everybody was saying that's the key. Why don't we go ahead and acknowledge that, you know, Populations of color will always be concentrated in areas, but why don't we change their life outcomes by design and by investment? But particularly on health, that should resonate with him. I was surprised that he called it a, a communistic, though. I, I thought that was that was really surprising. It was over the top. Yeah. So let's go back to something you said uh, a few minutes ago about how sort of awe-inspiring awe the job will be for him, how shocked he might be once he sits down in one of those important meetings. Uh, can't you uh, hire a deputy secretary who's who knows the landscape better than he does, who can do a great job? It reminds me of the Saturday Night Live skit where after his election, Donald Trump said to Mike Pence, you're going to do all the work, aren't you? <laughs> the, the, the secretary doesn't hire the deputy secretary. That is also a presidential appointment. The assistant secretaries are also presidential appointments, and you can talk to a secretary about those appointments, but the president reserves the right to make that decision. But he can and fill in there for, for any inadequacies in the resume of Dr. Carson on housing. I, I am not certain that the, the mindset of uh, President Trump and his staff leads one to building a strong management system uh, below people. He has some very talented people who he's appointed, but the, the key to making government work is going to be your assistant secretaries and your deputy secretaries. Um, and um, I haven't seen that pattern put in place as yet. Okay, so then back to, to Ben Carson. It's also been said that his life experience, he definitely grew up poor. There was a controversy over whether he actually grew up in, in, in public housing, which apparently he did not. But what about growing up poor? Does that prepare him for this position? No, it does not. It's too complicated an agency to say I was poor and therefore, matter of fact, it's so stereotypical, it makes me angry. Uh, you, we don't simply say that uh, being poor would make you a good uh, secretary or a deputy secretary. Um, it, it's complicated because urban areas, dealing with metropolitan areas, you're dealing with a variety of people, uh, wealthy people, engineers, professionals, people who are poor. It is, a, of all the agencies, the, it requires a sensitivity to the collaborative 
investments and input that people can make from who have different incomes, different faiths. So no, being you know raising your hand and saying I'm poor, so therefore I'm qualified to lead an agency that big. Um, I find it so stereotypical. It's maddening. It's stereotype. It's a stereotypical. And when we were in HUD, we used to get really angry about the stereotype. Oh yeah, you guys are from HUD because HUD always had a lot of people of color at its managerial, uh, and it was always the place where all the people of color went. And we used to we used to grouse at that as professionals, saying, you know, really we love this particular field, but it would not excuse a president from appointing people in an EPA uh, or in USDOT or in the Defense Department, the State Department, the National Academy of Science. I mean, I go on and on and on. So uh, I did not I did not like how it was set up. That's, that's the one for people of color. That was really kind I of annoying. I actually wondered that, so you answered another question I had. Yeah. Yeah. Let me bring up uh, what Patty Murray had to say, Senator Patty Murray, her statement after she uh, heard that uh, – Ben Carson was going to be nominated for this position. And she said, I believe Dr. Ben Carson is the wrong choice to lead such a critically important agency that directly affects so many vulnerable citizens. His past statements suggest he rejects the essential functions of HUD and will work against us as we fight to strengthen programs that give families a hand up during their time of need. The um, Senator Murray is highly regarded. Um, by Republicans and Democrats, and her opinion of a of a candidate who has to be approved by the United States Senate should not be disregarded. Well, she's already I made it clear that. that she's uh, going to be speaking out. Well, I think you know the issue really is it goes back to my sense that you just can't say here's a person of color they're good for HUD. I. I really offended by that. Sean Donovan, who was the secretary when I was there, is a near genius. It's the closest I've ever seen a person. And he went on to become the budget director for President Obama. And uh, you need that caliber of person at the top. Because remember, HUD's complicated. It is just not a block grant agency. It has so many functions. Its largest is an investment. But they also deal with contaminated sites, sustainability, transportation systems, healthcare systems, uh, you know, they, they, their influence over America's design and what is built here is really profound. And um, so, you know, I can't, I don't know uh, Dr. Carson enough to dismiss him, but um, he's going to have a very tough hearing because he's going to have to answer these things and lay those credentials out. It isn't going to be, again, people saying, well, you know, he's black and so therefore he understands HUD. Um, that. Uh, that's you can't do that to an agency. It's it fails them so much. It is so stereotypical. And for a person like me, who's an African American, it's really insulting. Don't do tell think, me, oh, the, I take it really personally. Don't tell me it's, this is the black agency and over here is a white agency. I'm sorry, that is not how the federal government's supposed to work. But do you think that that's what the president-elect has done? That he's he I, is the one African American. He said he that wanted is. a diverse cabinet, <laughs> and then he picks this person for this cabinet position. I have no idea what the president <laughs> was thinking. Dr. Carson's brilliant. He's been well honored in this country for his work in medicine. Um, you know, if I ruled the world, I'd put him ahead of uh, uh, NIH, which is a you know health uh, institute that does an incredible amount of do- uh, inf- pro- provides funds for medical and healthcare research. That would have been what I would have done to laud him. But uh, he's, if he is a learner, and I believe he is, he will have to go to HUD, not with an agenda. He's just going to have to listen to how people do their work, 
how it's done, why it's done, and then make decisions after that. But you're not going to be able to turn HUD around just because you are the secretary. It doesn't work that way. So here in Seattle, we have a huge problem with homelessness. And our mayor, Ed Murray, has declared a homelessness emergency. I am wondering what you think the impact will be of this new appointment on any federal help that we might get here in Seattle to help us pay for homeless programs. The homeless programs will remain, uh, they're determined by Congress. Um, I don't think you, we don't, uh, there was a time in HUD under another secretary years ago when I was the county executive where the, uh, the Republican head made it very clear that they were going to reward their friends. And so areas that were Democratic did not get funds. That proved to be an absolutely big mistake, and I can't believe anybody will go back and visit it again, where you say the homeless in one area, because they're in a Republican area, they should be taken care of, but the homeless in a Democratic area should not. When uh, Sean Donovan was the secretary, when I was the um, the deputy secretary, we simply said we're going to uh, talk about the range of housing and the good ideas. So it wasn't a matter of saying we actually wanted what we call intervention services. We would pay and assist with the structures, move money in where a person was going to be in a structured process, have psychological services, social services, food, uh, uh, clothing, and then we would deal with the housing because we said integrated services was the appropriate model to succeed. And the other really big problem here in Seattle is affordable housing. Before we started taping, we were talking about some of the neighborhoods that have really sort of seen prices go up like crazy. So there is now some controversy as well over Ben Carson's feelings about tax credits that help fund permanent subsidized housing. Very important for us here in Seattle. So how much support is there likely to come from Trump slash Carson for LIHTC, the Low Income Housing Tax Credit. I don't. That's uh, congressionally created. Um, and I cannot imagine um, the votes either, especially in the Senate, uh, let alone the House, removing that uh, tax credit policy. I just cannot see that happening. It, it doesn't make a huge dent in the federal government, but it certainly is a tool used by the private sector, basically, to enter into agreements to construct uh, low-income housing. Um, so he can, with, if he opposes it, um, it is because he doesn't understand it. It's um, we, we like using it as a leverage when we were there, among other funds that we could put in place, because you're not going to be able to turn your back on housing low-income people in the United States. It would be immoral to do that. Uh, you just can't tell people, um, live outside, uh, live in deteriorated and compromised housing stock. That is not the goal of a civilized country. Well, then could it be the target of corporate tax reform under Paul Ryan? The interesting, I, uh, Paul Ryan has uh, tried to talk about corporate tax reform as incentivizing the assistance to people who are poor. So it's, it's widely held that, so this group of taxes, this particular group, you're going to have a lot of people coming in saying, we use those. This is how we use it. They're market generated. We are private sector. I can't imagine them changing. I can imagine him making them even more desirable, but I cannot imagine him uh, or the House at all removing the tax credit. I, it, it would be stunning. It's so private sector driven. Um, I just can't, I don't even understand the rationale for getting rid of it. It has been undiscussed up to now, not attacked up to now. Um, and I can't imagine any administration coming in and saying, let's 
not do that anymore so that we can even further limit the uh, amount of housing that we're going to, affordable housing we're going to build in this country. Um, I think a lot of people would begin to poll that issue probably and say, that's not a good place to go in an environment where housing, particularly in areas like Seattle metropolitan area, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, Miami, Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, the Boston, New York, Philadelphia's, Chicago's. I mean, these things are so critical at being able to provide um, uh, that we call financing for uh, people who are not only low income, but, but people who are in that range of not making enough money quite to buy a house where apartments are expensive, but their proximity to employment is important. Um, so I think it's going to be around uh, quite a long time. You know, but housing and homelessness were, I don't think, really talked about much at all during the campaign. And yet we are a city and not alone on the West Coast cities that are facing this huge homelessness issue, housing affordability, which I suppose you could say it's across the country. Um, so how do, what's the game plan for Seattle, do you think, as, as we enter this Trump era? If I were Seattle, I would not let the Trump era define me. And I don't think we can afford to do that. And Explain I can't. But, you know, you can't, you can't, you, we don't know what's going to happen to housing or the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. We don't know what tools it's going to have, what money it's going to have. Um, uh, or do we need their money? Um, if they leave Seattle Housing Authority alone, we will do okay. Seattle Housing Authority is a special kind of housing authority. It's called moving to work. There are a limited number of them, which allows them to not only keep their money, but continue to finance innovative projects. Um, there's been an argument that that's not fair to all the other housing projects, but the reason why you have moving to work designation is because you're really, really good, and you are strong financially in strong markets. I hope that doesn't get assaulted, because that would impact, actually, some of the tools you need. King County's Housing Authority is similarly uh, a moving to work. Tacoma is a moving to work. Many of the large cities have moving to work housing authorities, which actually are able to organize a significant amount of capital to address the needs of their, their poor. And those are the hot markets. Those are places where we know uh, there's tremendous pressures on housing. And if they, if they don't have that flexibility to meet need, then we will have serious social consequences. You'll have people who are really doing well, living next door to people who are not doing well. And every scenario in American history has shown that is a very bad mix of people. You end up with volatility in your cities. It, so I think they're going to leave it alone. It sort of depends on how much of an island we in Washington, Seattle, West Coast want to be. Uh, Mayor Ed Murray, when he declared the, uh, the homelessness emergency, said, you know, I feel like uh, um, I'm alone in the woods here because what we need is we need state and federal help. Uh, and now, you know, that piece of it is at least in danger, wouldn't you say? I would think it's under discussion. Um, I, here's what happens. There's a and I'm assuming that this administration is going to understand that, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm assuming slow it. on the uptake. Slow could on be. the uptake. <laughs> take a little slow. time. <laughs> you, you, you leave your economic engines alone. And so the areas in the country that are going to be driving our economy, uh, where people want to work, where people want to live, where companies want to locate, 
um, I don't think are I don't think you're going to see the administration doing something adverse to their interests. They may not like their politics, but they're not going to you know you're not going to drive uh, and have Microsoft or Apple all of a sudden build a facility in uh, Moses Lake, Washington. That's just not going to happen. Um, so. I think that they will, again, begin to, the, especially Congress. Congress, uh, whether it's the House or the Senate, will be making, will be listening to uh, what we call large, where large money goes and why large money goes there. So I think that the areas that right now we've seen on the map that were very blue in the election will still be, uh, uh, it'll be hands off. Seattle will be one of those. They won't like our politics here. But they, I don't think they're going to try to uh, alter our economic climate and the culture that's created it. So a lot of people made fun of Dr. Carson during the uh, primary debates. He seemed kind of sleepy, actually, in some of those debates. But, you know, he has served as the director of pediatric surgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital. How do you get that job if you're incompetent? You have to really know something to do that job. I think he's brilliant. Um, I'm not, his rhetorical skills are not very good. Uh, when he gives prepared speeches, here, huh? I've heard, <laughs> I've heard him give prepared speeches, which are very touching about his life. And, and I've heard him give uh, speeches on the surgery itself that, uh, uh, he was most known for in his complexity. Um, the, um, so the issue to me, but you've got to be a listener. <laughs> He's going to have to listen. You go into HUD you're going to have to listen. If you think you're the only, if you, my father used to call it the cat's PJs. If you go in there and think that you are it and that you know all, the agency will overwhelm you and you'll make a lot of really bad mistakes. Congress will not tolerate those. The GAO won't tolerate those. The Congressional Budget Office won't tolerate those. So you are under so much pressure to perform, I think that he will go in and simply say, I have a lot of surgical assistants with me. That's what I would do. Um, and I would learn the business, but I wouldn't go in there with a feeling preordained that I know everything, and my God, it's my way or the highway. That is a success for failure in any federal agency that exists. Yeah, because I couldn't help but wonder, you know, that waffling over whether he wanted to do this, whether he wanted to stay private sector, whether he was qualified, how that washes down to all those employees. How do they take that? Our leader is sort of wishy-washy about this position. I think, you know, I have no idea what the average employee thinks about the appointments of a president. Um, the, uh, um, you know, you t can tell over time who people who've been there a long time, who they admired and respected and why. Um, but it wasn't ever because you simply were skillful in their field. It was because you allowed them to be skillful in their field. If it's do it my way, then all of a sudden you're going to find things slow down. And trust me, nothing can outweigh you more than a federal agency. They are built to outweigh you. They can, <laughs> they you know, they can say, you know. I remember learning. So if you don't bring them along, they can absolutely put the hand up and thwart you. Is that right? If you don't believe in them, they won't believe in you. Um, and that's, I don't mind that. I really don't. Remember, the, fed, the last government I want to be able to make a U turn on domestic policy or international policy is the federal government. You cannot have. We're not, they're supposed to be stable. You don't want them buffeted. And you don't want them all of a sudden going, you know, 
backwards on you and revisiting everything that you've abandoned because I think it's a good idea when you know as an employee that those things didn't work 10 years ago or 20 years ago, why are we going back to them? So I think people, if he does not, as a, as a, as a secretary, um, embrace the people he works with and allows their information to flow. And if you don't see yourself as a learner, uh, you have to. I mean, I had King County was not a small government. It was really complicated on a wide variety of issues. But you know, trying to learn all the stuff that people did, I mean, you could. It was a, a daily new experience. Um, but the, if I learned anything, you cannot. Bureaucracies have all these rules that people are paid by to follow. They are rewarded to follow. They are already written in place and trying to figure out which rule you can change. And the reason why they're there is because every administration has saw the need to put in place those rules for governance purposes, for rating purposes, for who you hire, who gets discharged, who retires early, what roles people play. They're there to provide, I always call a structure um, that allows government to be the continuity of government. Um, and it doesn't mean that I was in love with HUD. I mean, I, you know, I, my hair, I had more hair uh, <laughs> when I arrived than I did when it I left. It was darker. Um, and, but I'll never forget my, my first meeting when an employee said to me, I've been here 35 years. You're going to be here what? Exactly. Uh, she, she said, you know, two years, maybe three. And she said, so it was, and it was done in a way that was very professional. So my issue was, then how do I get to co-opt you? That's the first thing I said. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, daily new experiences, and that has been Donald Trump uh, as we uh, have, you know, are moving toward his uh, era as the president of the United States. And um, as we all know, he uh, he loves to tweet. What did you think of the Boeing tweets and the uh, all of his uh, outburst over the uh, Air Force One and Boeing and the amount of money that it was going to cost for that? Well, the federal government wanted a new Air Force One because Air Force One's a White House in the air uh, under extraordinary precautions, very sophisticated aircraft. It serves a purpose because the president will not be in the White House in New York City when we have war with anybody, and you don't want one, which is why the White House must fly with the president wherever they go in the world. Um, what You can't, you know, it's going to be really interesting. There was, um, if I'm a CEO of any company, uh, doing business with the federal government to I don't want to have to wake up every morning wondering what tweet came out but which will determine what happens in the stock why market why haven't they taken or, the phone away can you uh, explain that or based because on what may have ticked him off you cannot case, have a it may have been a Boeing official that ticked you, him off you you need a steady hand at president because what you say has policy and ramifications all around the world, and uh, you can't uh, you know. It did a number on Boeing stock for part of the day. It, it did, and it was very unfortunate because as Boeing pointed out, the, the cost of that craft is not because it's not the plane; it's all the things that the Defense Department Department is demanding be put in that aircraft. It's a very very specialized aircraft. It's not the one you catch when you're at an airport. 
Um, so it was just, you know, unfortunate that he was mad because the CEO basically was concerned about getting into tariff wars because tariffs would really hurt the Boeing company. You know, and Donald Trump had President President elect Trump had said that uh, his policy will be to add a 35 percent um, um, tariff on any our tax, import tax, if that company was an American company and the plane was exported. Well, Boeing has a lot of parts coming in to this country. It's a, it's an international company. And the, the CEO simply said, maybe that's not as good a policy. Now, interesting enough, Speaker so you think Ryan— all of a sudden that leads right, right to Air Force One in this war? Well, he did. Series. So he decided to do a Twitter on Air Force One because it was the Boeing Company CEO making the remarks. Although Speaker Ryan came back immediately and said to uh, President-elect Trump, if you think you're going to implement a uh, trade policy, a, a trade conditions, as you have described, they're non-starters. Uh, so there you have— what I always call the grown-up in the room, uh, basically saying, you know, we're, we're in an international trade that's going to exist. There's some things we may want to change, but you cannot on your own begin to cancel projects based upon the fact that you may have a foreign policy disagreement with it. What are you telling your fellow Democrats in this time? It will, it will not be dull. <laughs> <laughs> you made the cutest smile there. I was wondering what was all behind it. <laughs> you know, um, on a racial basis, I've been through worse. Uh, I came up in a period of time where there were no laws barring discrimination. Um, so the racism that I think is implicit in the president and his, his actions, um, I grew up in them. But now I have laws to protect me, so... My wife and I have made decisions then to move our money to organizations that can fight the uh, president in court on issues of civil liberties and civil rights because we feel really strongly about that, the same way I feel strongly about the environment. So our, our, my issue is I can sit silently or complain or I can move my money and uh, with other people's money and have a, a really good defense that becomes an offense to uh, our President uh, Trump. Um, and that's what I'm going to do. But am I going to be weary? The answer is no. Um, am I? Is, is this what the? Is this what I wanted to face? The answer is uh, no. But you know, not being preachy, but when I was a kid and I watched my parents fight this, it was Reverend Reed would always get up and he'd sing a song. I am no ways tired. I've come too far from where I started from. Nobody told me that the road would be easy, but, but I don't believe he brought me this far to leave me. And that's what I honestly believe I am going to endure. My kids are going to have a better life than mine. I will not sit back and watch them lose what we've gained. The son of a preacher, Ron Sims. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate it. Uh, we shall see in the days ahead. Well, this has been Vote 2016 election coverage. For Joni Balter, I'm Enrique Cerna. Thank you to Ron Sims. We'll talk more next time. To hear more podcasts from KCTS 9 Digital Studios, visit kcts9.org slash podcasts.